Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Chapter 20, Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, The Theory of Anderson. The legend or theory of Dr. Anderson is detailed first in the 1723 edition of the Book of Constitutions. This book was edited by him and published in the year 1723, and was then more fully developed and enlarged in the later edition of the same work that appeared in 1738. Anderson was acquainted with the more recent legend of the craft and very freely quotes it from a manuscript or record of Freemasons written in the reign of Edward IV, that is, toward the end of the 15th century. If Anderson's extracts from this manuscript are correct, it must be one of those writings that has been lost and not yet recovered. For among some other events not mentioned in the manuscripts that are now within reach, he states that the charges and laws of the Freemasons have been seen and read by Henry VI and his council and had been approved by them. He does not appear to have met with any of the earlier manuscripts, such as those of Hallowell and Roberts, which contain the legend in its older form. Certainly he makes no use of the legend of Euclid, passing over the services of that geometrician lightly, as the later manuscripts do, and not crediting to him the origin of the order in Egypt. This latter theory is the special feature of the older legend. Out of the later legend, and from whatever manuscripts containing it to which he had access, Anderson has formed a legend of his own. To this, he has added many things of his own creation and given a more detailed story, if not a more correct one, than that in the older legend of the craft. Anderson's legend or theory of the rise and progress of Freemasonry, as it is contained in the first edition of the Book of Constitutions, was for a long time accepted by the craft as a true history of the order, and it has had a very striking influence in the framing of other theories on this subject from which time to time have been worked out by writers who have made exhaustive studies of the matter. For the student, therefore, who is engaged in examining the legendary history of Freemasonry, this Andersonian legend is of great importance. The legend of the craft in its pure form was very little known to the great body of Masonic writers and students until the manuscripts containing this story in its various forms were made common to the Masonic public by the labors of Hallowell, Cook, and above all, by Hugin and his earnest associates in the search among the remains of early Freemasonry. But the legend of Anderson was within everybody's reach and well known to all. For a century and a half, it was deemed an authentic history. Even at the present day, it is accepted by some too trusting and not too well-informed members of the craft as a true story of the rise and progress of Freemasonry. We note that Anderson, in his History of the Progress of Freemasonry, mindful of the French proverb to commencer par la commencement, begin at the beginning, starts out by crediting to Adam a knowledge of geometry as the foundation of masonry and architecture, words which throughout his legend he uses as meaning the same thing. Adam taught these arts to his sons, and Cain especially practiced them by building a city. Seth also was equally acquainted with them and taught them to his children. 
Thus, the world before the flood was, according to this theory, very well acquainted with Freemasonry, and erected many curious works until the time of Noah, who built the ark by the principles of geometry and the rules of the craft. Noah and his three sons, all Freemasons, brought with them to the new world the tradition and arts of the period before the flood. Noah is therefore called the founder of masonry in the world after the flood, and hence Anderson called a Freemason a true Noachida or Noachite. The descendants of Noah exercised their skill in Freemasonry in the attempted erection of the Tower of Babel, but were confounded in their speech and dispersed into various countries, whereby the knowledge of Freemasonry was lost. It was, however, preserved in Shinar and Assyria, where Nimrod built many cities. Here, there afterwards lived many priests and mathematicians under the name of Chaldees and Magi, who practiced geometry or Freemasonry, and in that way the science and the art were sent on to later ages in distant lands. Mizraim, the second son of Ham, carried Freemasonry into Egypt, where the overflowing of the banks of the Nile caused greater attention to geometry and the study of landmarks and other measures. This brought Freemasonry much into esteem and use. Freemasonry was taken into the land of Canaan by the descendants of the youngest son of Ham, and then into Europe, as Anderson supposes, by the children of Japhet, although we know nothing of their works. The family of Shem also used the art of Freemasonry, and Abraham, the head of one branch, having thus obtained his knowledge of geometry and the allied sciences, gave that information to the Egyptians and to his descendants, the Israelites. When, therefore, they made their exodus from Egypt, the Israelites were a whole kingdom of Masons, and while in the wilderness were often assembled by their Grand Master Moses into a regular and general lodge. When they took possession of Canaan, the Israelites found the people were informed upon Freemasonry, which, however, the victors greatly improved, for the quality of the finest structures in Tyre and Sidon were overtaken by the wonders of the temple erected by King Solomon in Jerusalem. In the building of this edifice, Solomon was assisted by the Freemasons and carpenters of Hiram, king of Tyre, and especially by the king of Tyre's namesake Hiram, or Hiram, to whom, in a note, Anderson gives the name of Hiram Babif, a name he has since retained among the craft. Anderson gives in this legend the first detailed account of the Temple of Solomon that is to be found in any Masonic work. It is, however, taken from that contained in the Book of Kings and Chronicles, with some added statements for which he was probably indebted to his own invention. But it has had a considerable influence upon other legends framed later, and especially upon all the rituals, and indeed upon all the modern ideas of speculative Freemasons. After the construction of the temple, the Freemasons who had been at work upon it dispersed into Syria, Mesopotamia, Assyria, Chaldea, Babylonia, Media, Persia, Arabia, Africa, Lesser Asia, Greece, and other parts of Europe. There, they taught the art to many eminent persons, and kings, princes, and potentates became grand masters, each in his own country. The legend then passes on to Nebuchadnezzar, whom it calls a grand master, and asserts that he got many benefits in Freemasonry from the Jewish captives whom he brought to Babylon after he had looted Jerusalem and its temple. Afterwards, Cyrus made Zerubbabel the leader of the Jews, who, being freed from their captivity, returned to Jerusalem and built the second temple. From Palestine and after the building of the temple, Freemasonry was carried into Greece and arrived at its height during the Jewish captivity. And in the time of Thallus Milesius, the philosopher and his pupil Pythagoras, who is the author of the 47th proposition of Euclid, which is the foundation of all masonry. 
Pythagoras traveled into Egypt and Babylon and gained much information from the priest and the Magi, which he taught in Greece and Italy on his return. The legend now speaks, indirectly as it were, of the progress of masonry in Asia Minor and of the labors of Euclid in Egypt, in the orderly digestion of geometry into a science. Then it dwells upon the great improvement of Freemasonry in Greece, whose Freemasons arrived at the same degree of skill and power as their teachers, the Asiatics and Egyptians. From Sicily, from Greece, from Egypt and Asia, Freemasonry was brought to Rome. This great city soon became the center of learning, and it spread the knowledge of Freemasonry among the nations which it held captive and governed. The Emperor Augustus became the Grand Master of the Lodge at Rome and established the Augustan style of architecture. During the prosperous condition of the Roman Empire, Freemasonry was carefully taught to the remotest regions of the world, and a lodge erected at almost every place that Roman soldiers controlled. But when the empire declined in power, when the Roman armies were drawn away from Britain, the Angles and Lower Saxons, who had been invited by the ancient Britons to come over and help them against the Scots and Picts, at length subdued the southern port of England, where Freemasonry had been taught by the Romans, and the art then fell into decay. The Anglo-Saxons recovered their freedom in the 8th century, and Freemasonry was revived. At the desire of the Saxon kings, Charles Martel, king of France, sent over several expert craftsmen so that the Gothic architecture was again encouraged during the Heptarchy, or the period of the Seven Kingdoms. The many attacks from the Danes caused the numerous records to be destroyed, but did not to any great extent interfere with the work, although the methods used by the Roman builders were lost. But when the war ended and peace was declared by the Norman victory, Gothic Freemasonry was restored and encouraged by William the Conqueror and his son, William Rufus, who built Westminster Hall at London. From that time onward, in spite of the later wars and the quarrels of the barons, Masonry never ceased to hold its position in England. In the year 1362, Edward III had an officer called the King's Freemason, or General Surveyor of Buildings, whose name was Henry Evil, and who erected many public works. Anderson now repeats the legend of the craft with the story of Athelstan and his son Edwin, taking it with a probable change of the language from a record of Freemasons, which he says was written in the reign of Edward IV. This record adds, as he says, that the charges and laws therein contained had been seen and approved by Henry VI and the lords of his council, who must therefore, to enable them to make such a review, have been closely in touch or actually incorporated with the Freemasons. Because of this fact, the act passed by Parliament when the king was a child, forbidding the yearly congregations or communications of Freemasons in their general assemblies, was never enforced after the king had arrived at manhood and had studied over the regulations in that old record. The kings of Scotland also encouraged Freemasonry from the earliest times down to the union of the crowns and granted to the Scottish Freemasons the right of having a fixed Grand Master and Grand Warden. Queen Elizabeth did not favor Freemasonry, and she neglected it during her whole reign. She even sent a commission to York to break up the annual assembly. The members of the commission being admitted into the lodge made on their return so favorable a report to the queen of the fraternity that she no longer opposed the Freemasons. However, she merely endured them and gave no active help. Her successor, James I, was a patron of Freemasonry and greatly revived the art. He restored the Roman architecture, employing Inigo Jones as his architect, under whom was Nicholas Stone as his master mason. Charles I was also a Freemason and favored the art whose successful progress was unhappily held back by the civil wars and the death of the king. 
After the return of the royal family, Freemasonry was again revived by Charles II, who was a great help to the craftsmen, and therefore supposed to have been a Freemason. In the reign of James II, Freemasonry not being duly cultivated, the London lodges much dwindled into ignorance. On the coming of William to the throne, that king, who by most is reckoned as a Freemason, greatly favored the art and showed himself a patron of Freemasonry. William's good example was followed by Queen Anne. She ordered 50 new churches to be erected in London and its suburbs. This help was also continued by George I, her successor. Then, with a reference to the opinion that the religious and military orders of knighthood in the Middle Ages had taken many of their solemn customs from Freemasons, the legend here ends. The study of this legend will show that it is, in fact, except in the latter portions, which are somewhat historical, only a general survey of the later legend of the craft, including all that is said there and adding other claims, partly taken from history and partly, perhaps, from the author's invention. The 1738 or second edition of the Constitution goes more fully over the same ground, but it is written in the form rather of a history than a legend. A review of it is not, therefore, necessary or suitable in this part of the present work, which treats only of the legends of the order. This second edition, 1738, of Anderson's work has many things which will be cast aside as worthless by the skeptical student of Masonic history, and many which, if not at once denied, he will demand proof to support them. But with all its errors, this work of Anderson has a store of facts that makes it interesting and helpful. The author has our esteem and thanks for his labors in behalf of the literature of Freemasonry at so early a period after its revival in 1717. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.